Thank you for tuning in. What does it take to create our own success, whether we're introverted or not? What's typically behind the I'm too busy excuse? And why is communication our primary career and firm success skill? Well, today we dig into this and more, including leadership and the power of problem solving and building relationships, as well as the critical roles, fear, failure, feedback, and courage play in either moving us forward or holding us back. And like so many of our other deep dialogue podcast episodes, this is an episode you and your team may very well want to listen to more than once. Our guest is Jim Rogers, president of Unbridled Revenue and co-creator of the Seller Doer Academy. And what started out as a discussion on business development and growing and advancing AEC entrepreneurship quickly shifted and built into what it takes to grow and to succeed as a consultant, something that's applicable to both current and emerging leaders and really anyone we seek to work with or employ. And so without any further delay, and despite one small patch of unstable internet, let's step into this conversation and learn or be reminded of what it takes to increase our overall competence and confidence as a consultant in this new era and beyond. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Jim Rogers, president of Unbridled Revenue and co-creator of the Seller Doer Academy. And we'll be talking about business development and professional services in general and in AEC specifically. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming. This I, I've been waiting for this um, episode um, to record this with you because I have a lot of conversations um, with both current and emerging professionals about um, the entrepreneurial spirit within our industry, how best to perform business development, what you know, how to get people interested in it um, and successful in all the different aspects of it. So um, I'm really appreciative of you being here today and diving into the subject. Um, before we begin, though, can you share a little bit about you, your career, what brought you into AEC and, and what you what you do now, what you focus on? Sure. I'll start with the, I'll start at the end here, which is your question about the AE uh, being in the AEC industry. And that's a complete accident. So we'll work, we'll rewind and go back. And then how, how did we get to the accident? Well, I started my career as a kind of miscast. I was a software engineer. I was an economics major at university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and was kind of miscast. Although thankfully so, as a software engineer for what was then Arthur Anderson, became Anderson Consulting for most of the time I was there and is now Accenture. So it's the world's largest global systems integration firm in the world. And I was a, what I'll, what I'll say on a, on a good day, I was a C player at software, at, at systems integration, software development. And so, you know, what do I do at the height of the dot-com boom? I leave my well-paying job in New York City with Accenture, and I moved to California to start a software company because that's what people who are C players at, at developing software do, right? Because anybody could do it. It looked like anybody could do it. And, it. and it just couldn't raise enough money, couldn't get it off the ground. A couple of years later, I had to go back and, and go back to what I'd been doing earlier, which is organizational change management consulting. And what that is briefly for folks, anybody that uses an accounting system that's not QuickBooks uses in this industry uses something that's more sophisticated. I'm not going to name any names, but sometimes there are things that include CRM systems and procurement, supply chain, not just the billing, and, and, and but really help you manage the entire enterprise. 
SAP is the one that I spent most of my career implementing, but also customer service systems for power utilities and taxation systems for state and local governments. It was my job as an organizational change management consultant to get people to adopt new processes, practices, and technology, basically to get people to do stuff they didn't want to do. So you could tell them how great it was going to be, how much easier it was going to make their lives, how much more money the company was going to make. They were going to be more profitable. You were going to be happy shareholders if you got, if you held shares in your company. Nobody wanted it anyway because you were asking me to change the way I do things. And I'm comfortable with what I do today. So this might be telegraphing something, but part of the reason I enjoyed writing this book is thinking about how do you get technical professionals to do something they don't want to do? which is go out and do marketing and business development and sell. So it's that, that reluctant, that, that some, what I call the sometimes salesperson, that's not the most fun part of their job. It's not the best part of their job. It's not what they went to school for. And they feel insecure about whether they can do it or not, or whether they're doing it right. And it was that background as a management consultant that I think has led me to be successful in the AEC industry. So you asked me how I got here. Is it? Can, can I tell you that quick story? That would be great. Yes. The quick story is I was miserable doing systems integration work. I wasn't good at it. Like I said, I was a I was a I was a B player on a good day, and I was a C player on most days. But doing the organizational change management consulting, there weren't a lot of people out there doing that. So it's kind of lucrative, and you could be a B player and make pretty good money. But I was miserable. Who wants to show up to work every day knowing you're going to do B level work? You know or C, C player work. I just wasn't good at big project kind of work. I'm happy with what I'm doing now. So I started thinking about how to get out of that, that, that hamster wheel of getting on project after project. And you're normally you're on one project at a time. And it can be a years long project, right? One client at a time. And I'm, I was sitting in a hotel room in Jacksonville, Florida one night, just miserable. And um, I was looking at my phone at 7 p.m. My daughter, I, I knew that when the phone rang, my wife was going to put one of my daughters on the phone to say goodnight. And that meant they'd, that they'd eaten, they'd been bathed, they were in the pajamas. It was time to say goodnight to daddy. Phone rings and I pick up the phone and I hear Kathy hand it to my daughter, Lucy. And she says, you know, here, Jim, here's Lucy. And I said, hi, sweetheart. How are you? Well, how are you? And she said, daddy, are you coming over tonight? She didn't even know I lived there because I flew out on Monday mornings and back on Fridays. So she thought I was just a house guest that I would show up on weekends. That's that's the road life that you would have in systems integration world that that um, engineers may not have to face as often unless it's really special kind of project, jumbo project. But I, I, at that point, I realized that I didn't want to keep doing something that was going to keep me on the road away from my family. My kids don't know I live there and I'm showing up not wanting to, you know, trudging into the office every day. And who wants to do that? Right. So I figured, well, what's something I could start to do in the hotel room to make some supplemental income to maybe kind of work my way out of this. And I thought, well, proposal writing, because I was good at selling work to state and local government clients with Accenture. And so I asked, started asking around and using my network and one of my uh, somebody that goes to church with me, it was a civil engineer. I'm like, you guys write proposals, right? And he said, yeah. I said, show me one. Marked it up, gave it back to him, talked him through it. He goes, wow, you know, you ought to be working in this industry. We don't know how to write proposals. And so that's how I kind of got in here. It was an accident, a couple of introductions, the network. And I wrote a book on proposal writing called Win More Work, How to Write Winning AEC Proposals. And kind of fast forward to where I am now, what I realized when I was helping people write winning proposals, is they couldn't answer some of my basic questions about their clients. So at some point, the realization hit me that I was going to have to pe get people to be better consultants, better business developers to be able to write a superior proposal because everybody's good at gathering technical requirements and put together a technical approach. But what they couldn't answer was, so tell me who the decision maker is and what's most important to them about this project. And that's because that. I, I, that's well, I, I'll let you continue. That, that I did want to dive into that piece too, in, in kind of the, the reason you wrote the book, the, 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 your second book, which is Becoming a Doer Seller. And I think it, it has to do with helping people get to the point where you can take advantage of what you've been able to share about writing proposals 
in order before you get to that piece, you really have to learn how to be consultative and learn how to you know get that information. Um, but I want to just say, you know, accidentally got into the the AC industry, but with a pretty powerful moment um, to number one, be able to have that moment and act on it and and kind of create your own accident. So I, I, I think that's pretty pretty great. And I think the industry is glad that you had that moment um, to be able to sort of work with us on proposal writing first. And now as it relates to becoming seller doers. Yeah. You know, I, I was reluctant to go there. I'm like, well, you know, sales training, and I hate to think of it as just sales training. I think what I really do is help people become better consultants. And a lot of that's asking smart questions and shutting up and then asking follow-up questions and asking questions that your competitors want to ask. And I think that's what's missing from in, in this industry is going beyond technical requirements, which anybody can gather and understanding the human requirements of the people who are either the sponsors of the project or the people that are your counterparts that are going to help deliver it. Right. And, and those often the people on the decision making committee, and that's where people kind of, kind of fail. I don't want to spend too much time on that. Well, I think it, 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 I mean, it does, maybe we could leverage off that piece because it, I mean, what you just said was, was very powerful. So maybe just fill in the blank. You wrote your first book, basically focused on better proposal writing. This second book is becoming a doer seller. I guess two part question. Why did you write that? I know we, we alluded to that a little bit to, to help people then have the information to write a better proposal, but maybe just clarify or, or add to that. Why did you write the book? And then and it's interesting. I appreciate you sending me a copy of it. How did you go about it when you knew you wanted to write the content? Um, how did you go about doing that? Because I thought that was pretty unique. Yeah, well, the first was, you know, honestly, uh, it is something that I would suggest to a lot of my clients is, is one of the best ways to market what you have. And we built the seller doer Academy back in 2016 is, you know, we wanted to at the time, take advantage of that, that term that had taken off like wildfire in the industry seller doer. Now we, I say seller doer, it, some people say doer seller, and I don't just make a big distinction between those two, but we were like, well, we've, we've built this program and we've talked to a lot of people. We've learned a lot. We should be able to share that and leverage this word seller doer. We ought to have it in a book, you know, so that we can help market what we've built. And so it was not, you know, it was not a selfless act. It was a marketing tool. And one of the things that we'll talk about in a little bit is putting your intellectual property out there or your, your expertise, if you don't have, you know, copyrighted intellectual property is, is one way to raise your profile. And it's a safe, easy way to do it for people that don't want to do marketing, especially somebody who's a little introverted. You know what? Sometimes standing up and giving a presentation is easy because you're in command of the room. And if it's a technical topic you're passionate about, it's easy to be excited about sharing that knowledge with somebody. And then, you know, instead of worrying about going to cocktail hour and standing around eating, you know, your having your your drink in one hand and a plate of appetizers in the other, which you dread to hand out your business cards there, where you stand at the front of the room when your talk's over and people come up and talk to you because they have questions for you. How hard is that, right? So that's a fairly easy thing for, a, you know, a, an easy way for a, a more introverted or shy person to do something they don't want to do if you're passionate about something that you do. So was the was the writing the book and and I I mean a mark you know for marketing understood, um, but it's also we got a lot of great tactical advice in it. So it is an an expression of your expertise. But is that how you got into? Yes, it's for marketing. Yes, I'm sharing my expertise. But you did a lot of interviews for the book, and and is that part of the the strategy with marketing the book is to ask people who I ultimately want to be, have the chance to work with or people who I've met through industry events? I, I want to. I mean, it's a pretty unique approach in our industry, and and I thought that was pretty powerful. But how, how did you come up with the you know how you would write the book in terms of interviewing people? It, it, and it was you know it it was a way to grow the grow our network because I hadn't been out in the industry that long you know i think this book started in 2017 i think we conceived it in 2017 we probably started doing interviews 
late that year, maybe 2018. But we had this big lull. You know, there was something that happened early 2020 that disrupted lots of lots of plans of folks. So otherwise, it might have been done a little bit sooner. You, but the the one of the keys was to try to grow our network and become known. And the the cool thing was we met so many amazing executives who were intentional about how they uh, lead and how they develop seller-doer skills. And whether they use that term or not, some people say doer-seller, some don't want to label anybody, but the, the next generation of rainmakers or just how do you activate people to do something, anything, even if it only leads to $10,000 worth of work, right? Is there something that people could do to understand that marketing is everybody's job? And it might just be how you tell your story at at, at the at church when somebody asks you what you do for a living, right? And to be able to talk about projects that you, oh, you guys did that? Oh, that's cool. You know, just being able to have that those easy conversations that you should be able to have with people. How we mentioned a couple of things. I mean, business development in general, we talked about marketing, and then there's the sales component. I'd love to get your perspective. Those are three different functions that they're used interchangeably sometimes inappropriately. But when you think about those, could you walk us through I me? Mean, what, how do you define or think about marketing first? And then maybe, you know, a little description of what you think about business development and then sales. Yeah. So in the book, I think it's in the second chapter, I introduce an acronym and I have really bad acronyms. You'll love, you'll, you'll love that when you get through the book. And because there, it was hard to come up with things that were easy to say, right? Or that were real words. So mine always fall short of being a real memorable word. But RLOCK, R-L-O-C-K, is an organizer that I use to reflect the client life cycle. In any sales book you ever read or marketing book, it's going to talk about the client life cycle. They're all the same, whether they have three stages, five stages, eight stages, whatever. They're just different labels for different stages in the client life cycle. So the R and the L to me are what people would traditionally call marketing. And I try to stay away from And you may notice in the book that I try to stay away from the word sales and marketing because that a lot of people say, well, sales, that's not my job. That's what a rainmaker does or marketing. That's what the marketing department does. So I tried to as much as I could. And the, the book, the, the book, the title of the book has the word seller in it. Right. Because it's a buzzword. People might not be as likely to pick up the book. Right. And then I immediately try to get a word away from the word sales or run screaming into the woods to get away from it. So the, in terms of marketing, R and L, R stands for recognition, L stands for leads. I'll give you the other three real quick. O is for opportunities, C is for closing the sale, and then K is for keeping clients. So that's my one kind of kludgy word that's in there to make it a little easier to say and remember, R lock. So R and L, building recognition for your expertise and maybe being a brand ambassador, which is kind of the, the, the buzzword right now that nobody will be using in five years, right? Being a, being a brand ambassador for the firm so people know what your firm does. And then L, which is lead generation. And to me, that's really networking. So, but I, I tried to distinguish between those because one, because different people may have different levels of involvement in, in, either going out there and speaking at conferences or doing lunch and learns for a client. And that's what that's a couple of the things that I suggest people do in terms of R, the building recognition, which is why I wrote the book, so that people could recognize my expertise in this space, right? That doesn't do a whole lot if you don't follow that through with building relationships of some sort. And so that hopefully doing that work will lead to lead generation. But if you're not putting your technical expertise out there. You can do it too. That's okay. If you don't want to do breakout presentations at conferences or lunch and learns for client, you're just going to go out and do networking. And there are two ways to do that. You can do it face-to-face. You can, well, a couple of ways to do it. One's referral networking, asking people for introductions. You can do that at home on Zoom or on the phone and uh, using LinkedIn, tools like LinkedIn to build your network online. So it's everybody's job at all stages in their career to grow their network. I don't care whether you're 22. And the, a lot of engineers start this in college, right? They're in ASCE already in the engineering school. I know they have, and I don't know enough about it because I'm not an engineer. I just pretend to be one when I write books. 
but uh, and I, I assume they have NSPE chapters. I, I've been in some of the engineering schools. I see all the banners for the for the clubs and meeting information, things like that. So I know that they're already building those networks, but then you want to build your network outside your college chums, right? And that's what uh, where I think a lot of people fail when they're in their early 20s is when they show up at a networking event, they want to talk to the people that they've known from college. Well, that's not growing your network. That's just staying in touch, right? You're supposed to be growing your network. So you could be using those folks to introduce you to other people that should be in your network. So that's an important part of lead generation. You know, to me, a lead is just a business card and a qualified lead is one that you don't throw in the trash can. You actually want to do something with when you get back to the office. This this is a client that this is either somebody that's valuable to be in my network or somebody that could be we could do business with because they're in our target profile client range. Right. And you may not be the one that works that. Maybe maybe you don't want to be a rainmaker or a principal. Maybe you're not there yet. You wouldn't be able to anyway. Maybe you're just taking that business card and going to see a a principal or a senior manager saying, hey, I met somebody and they had they're doing something. We need to go talk to them. And I'm 23. I'm probably not the right person to lead the discussion, but boy, I'd like to go with you. So yeah. do you think like the the business development, that that marketing piece, you know, has, has a big networking component, just just having something of, of expertise that, you know, how you can help solve a problem, but then having the recognition through networking? Yes. What, what about some of the, 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 the O and the C? Is that more related to the the sales, although we don't want to really call it the sales piece versus the marketing piece? You know, um, one of the people I interviewed for the book was uh, Russ Sanford with Kleinschmidt. And I think they're based in Maine, but he was in South Carolina at the time. He may have moved farther south at this point. But he, I like the way he described this. He's a big SPS professional. So he's very well known within SPS, and he does seller doer training. And he talks about he talks about three stages. I have five. He has three, and which is fine. His is marketing, business development, and then sales. So I I liked that. So I took the the middle, what people call business development, and I call that opportunity. So that's my O. And that's from the time that you have a qualified lead. Maybe there's a project or contract that you think you may want to go after because it's a lucrative client or somebody that you want to have as a client to the time that there's a solicitation. So whether that's a formal procurement process or somebody says, hey, you know, give me a letter, you know, give me a quote, give me a fee proposal, whatever that is, that's that window where most of the heavy lifting is done in, in trying to win a contract. And two thirds of them are won or lost there. So we talked about my book on proposal writing. Well, I'm helping people try to write better proposals. When that RFP comes out, you've got a 10, 20% chance of moving the needle at that point. They may already be leaning towards somebody, right? Maybe they're leaning toward you and a bad proposal could screw it up, but I'd rather have a mediocre proposal and a great relationship and done a better job in gathering requirements and building relationships with the decision makers in the earlier stages, because that's where you gain competitive advantage. So that's, oh, that's the middle BD stage. And then sales uh, to me is closing. That could be as, as simple as asking for the business, which people are afraid to do, right? Uh, anytime I, uh, uh, sponsor hires me to do training and it's usually an EVP of business development or sometimes it's CEO. They expect me to do some business development training for their seller doers. So you're going to teach them, Jim, you're going to teach them how to ask for the business, right? Because I'm not going to hire you if you're not going to teach them to ask for the business. Everybody's scared to ask for the business. And so I think I finally figured this out. A way to explain it is I think people are afraid to be rejected or they're afraid to be pushy if asking for the business means, are you ready to sign on the dotted line? You're ready to hire us, right? As opposed to just saying, hey, you know, this feels like a good fit. We want to do this. Um, does it make sense to go to the next step? Or what's the next step? How easy is that? Can't, can't you always ask a prospective client, what's the next step? If, if you think we're a good fit, what's the next step? Now, all of a sudden, you've taken a lot of pressure out of the situation. So one of the themes in the conversation we're going to have today is, is you know how do you how do you get rid of some of the fear that causes inertia which keeps people from doing stuff that they need to do to help grow the business and 
And a, a lot of it is that we've, we've, we're being, making it too hard. So I try to make things really easy. I try to make it the things I ask people to do. I will say, is that something you can't do? And they'll say, no, that's not something, something I can't. I, of course I can do that, Jim. It's very easy. Well, so let's, guess, let's, let's push right into that, you know, cause you're, I, I know from our discussions, you do, you work very closely with, with, with teams and individuals to kind of work through this material to get to that point of a very powerful question and a, and a great mindset shift to say, you know, if you think, you know, we might work well together, you know, what do you think we, what would be the next step? How do we move forward? It's not just asking for the contract. It's, you know, how do we continue to move forward? Very powerful ways, but I don't know, maybe, maybe if you can put us in the room, like when you're working with a group, what do you, what are some of the fears that people have or the anxieties or the barriers or the, the reasons that they're already giving you for why they're not going to change? <laughs> I mean, so what, what do you think when you start a training, what's some of the, the maybe the mindsets or, or, the, or the baggage or the negative thinking that you already know is in the room that you've got to kind of work through before you start moving people forward? Yeah, good question. And that's where my organizational change management background comes in. We talked in the in the 80s, we had this term called FUD, F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I think it comes from IBM. And it was a way to sell expensive com- computer uh, computers and the software that runs them and the, the consulting services that you need to install a system like that. And their strategy was to was to raise fear, uncertainty, and doubt. On the on the client side, because they were overwhelmed by this new technology that was coming down the pipe, so then IBM could rush to the rescue, right? So in in uh, in this world, fear, uncertainty, and doubt is that I'm, I'm afraid to do it, but or I'm uncertain that I can do it, or I doubt that I could do it, and it leads people to do nothing. Because it's the default is let me do something I'm good at as opposed to something I'm not sure I can do or I'm I'm convinced I'll be an abject failure at this. There's no way, right? Or you know, some people are like, well, you know, show me and let me see, but they still have that uncertainty that might hold them back. But what what happens? And you've probably seen this, Pete, and any executive that I talk to says they hear the same thing, which is I'm too busy. How can I have time to go out and sell? Too busy. They're too busy delivering client work. Do you want client service to suffer? Those are excuses to me. So they're hiding behind client work to keep, because they're good at client work. They're good at solving problems. They're good at design. They're good at delivery. Sales and marketing? Well, I don't feel very comfortable about that. And it's because they're a sometimes salesperson. If they spent 80% of their time doing that, that makes them a rainmaker and not there's a different kind of seller doer, right? They're on human growth hormone. But if it's a if it's a somebody that's in their late twenties, thirties, just kind of getting started, it's it's can be daunting, and it's just easier to, hey, I know I need to call three people that I haven't talked to in a while. Maybe they've got some work coming down the pike. But before that, I better check my email. Oh, I hope I have a lot of emails so that I don't have to pick up the phone and make those calls, right? So that's that's what gets in the way. And I think that the people who have less of that, and everybody has some of them, right? I have it and I teach this stuff, is the people who struggle with it less um, already have good communication skills. Is yeah, there's I, I, one I, thing that they're not having to overcome is fear of looking foolish every time you open your mouth. So those folks make the best stride. So what I would say to somebody who wants to do this because they want to take command of their career is work on those foundational skills. And you start to do that in college, you know, when you're a co-op, I've, I've got, I'm doing some training for a client and they want their co-ops in it. They want their EITs in it. They're not waiting until somebody's a licensed PE to start to put them in training. And we work on foundational skills like effective business writing, business etiquette, effective listening skills, they become better listeners and that makes them better, not just better consultants, it makes them better employees and teammates and makes people better leaders. So those are those core foundational skills that show up early in this book, because if you don't have those, that's the place to work. Because if you can gain confidence there, you're taking away one of the excuses. 
Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. And, you know, it's like, so almost foundationally, it's wants to do this, right? So we kind of leave that there. And it wants to then take control of their career through be able to find work, which then might trigger, I need to get better at communication, which now I can solve my busy problem. And so I'm not going to have that as an excuse The wants to do this part. Do you, how do you, is it in us? Do, do we really, do people have it or not? Is it just so buried in fear that you can kind of work through a training series and it un- unlocks and uncovers and we all have it in us. It's just a matter of how much fear and buried it is, it buried it is. Or do you think it's just some people have it, some people don't? Because when somebody wants to do something, there's really nothing stopping. I mean, in life, right? Well, we want to do it, but the question is, how do we get to that point of wanting it? And, and maybe there's a lot of unlocking versus you have it or you don't. But what, how do you think of that? Either have it or you don't and unlocking that desire to want it. Yeah. You know, I think there are always going to be some people who, who want it and have it. And I think executives spend too much time trying to figure out who those people are. You don't need to figure out who those people are. They're going to step up and do it anyway, right? Just get out of their way, right? Any, anything that you can do to help them, that's great. But if you don't help them, they're going to figure it out on their own because they're about to replace you, right? So you don't worry about those guys. And actually, there's there's some theory that management theory that says, stop training your, try to stop trying to figure out who your A and B players are because you might be wrong, but you can look at performance and kind of figure out who your top don't invest in them because what are you going to get for get 10% more productivity out of them? Why don't you take your B players and make them B plus players or A minus players? You get a lot more bang for the buck and bring that next group along. But let me give you an, to, to, to go back to the, you know, don't have it, but maybe want to do it. So let's say you want to take command of your career. You, maybe you don't want to be a principal, but you want to, you want to be able to fire bad clients or say no to a, a project that you just think is going to be a boring make work for the consultant to print invoices to keep the lights on every month. Right. Have you ever, have you ever faced any of those? Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. You want to be able to work your way out of those. Are you going to get out of that by being the best technical person? Are you going to be able to do that because you were able to do something to bring in the kind of work that you like to do, whether you're a rainmaker closer or not, right. Can you go do those lunch and learns? Can you speak at conferences? Are you willing to network? Uh, are you willing to write posts on LinkedIn and, and be, be, however it is you might want to do it? So let's say you're let's say you are a shy person. Let's say you are. I don't like the introvert extrovert discussion very much. I address it in the book. Let's say you truly are an introvert. Let's say you're truly painfully shy. Let's say you have general anxiety disorder. Let's go that far that you really can't stand. But you think it's important for your career to be able to do the kind of work that you want and create the kind of career that you want? Could you do that if you don't have those communication skills? Yeah, I'd be going to see I'd be going to see a doctor and saying, "Hey, doc, this is affecting the kind of career that I want to have." And they might refer you to a psychologist, you know, or a psych or a psychiatrist that could prescribe medication that could help you. So that's my extreme example. So it depends on: Are you willing to say, "Well, I could never do that." I'm, sh- I'm too introverted. I'm too shy. Or would you say, you know what? This is the kind of career I want to have. I'm going to have to learn how to deal with this. Maybe I have to do it in baby steps. Maybe I need to get some other help. Maybe I need to find my way of doing it that a shy person can do this. Maybe LinkedIn is a way to do that for some people, you know, um, but there's always a way. But but it's still do, it? it's still in that desire to and in this case it's not just I, I want to be able to to sell work to work you know to, in, to to be able to work on the types of things I want to have it's really to kind of have more ownership in my career to take more command in my career to be able to do so and and then we sort of look at the barriers um, and 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 we just work our well way through them. Um, and that, that's why the the title of the book says take command of, you know succeed at business development take command of your career. It's not succeed at business development, become a partner, succeed at business development and gain wealth, you know, fame and wealth. It's take them out. What do you want your career to be like? And, and you may not ever want the management responsibility and that a principal might have. And you don't have to. You can be an independent contributor, take control of the kinds of clients that you have, the project teams that you work on. You, you will influence what 
projects you um, can say no to, right? Right. And, and people will respect you and they're like, you know, we got to keep this person because they can help do a little something to bring in revenue. They're not just doing technical work and getting that out the door. Right. And you can take control or command of your career the minute you say, I want to um, for, for this. You, you had mentioned skills, great communication skills uh, being, is that the essential skill? And then you can kind of build from that. But can you talk a little bit more about that? I guess the power of communication skills and is there something, anything more important than that? Or, or, or is that it? I mean, that would be the first skill you develop. I think it starts there. Absolutely. There are so many people you could point to who would agree with that. Warren Buffett being one of them, you know, uh, who the one certificate I think he has on his wall is a, is a certificate of all the honors and doc, you know honorary doctorates and things that he's gotten, the one thing he has on his wall is a certificate from completing a Dale Carnegie public speaking course. Now that's that could be urban legend, but that's that's what I've heard. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And the person who the the person who formed SMPS and the name escapes me right now, which is uh, which is sad. <laughs> he's been, I think he's been gone longer than, than I've been in the industry, but he would say that, that the seller doer or the business developers primary skill is communication skill. So this yeah. is not just coming from me, but what I would say is if you struggle to put your thoughts together in a compelling way or to think on your feet and in a networking about, cause that's making you uncomfortable because you're afraid of looking foolish or if your business writing is subpar and you're going to be writing proposals and nobody can can read the word salad that's on the page, right? And make sense out of it because you have a, 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 a paragraph that is uh, 15 lines long and has two sentences in it and you're confusing everybody with what you write. So there are ways to go build those, those business writing, communication, interpersonal kind of one-on-one conversations or small group conversations or delivering a presentation. Again, I keep going back to that because doing lunch and learns for clients was one of the things that came up over and over and over with the executives I interviewed for the book. Do lunch and learns. You're going to build confidence. You build your communication skills and you're actually, you, you, you could get work out of it. So Judy Nitch, I refer to her a couple of times in the book. She is a, she's retired now, but created Nitch engineering in Boston. I don't know how many employees they have now. I know they were up to hundred at one point and almost all their businesses as a prime, not as a sub. Judy Nitch talks about getting licensed to do training for architects. And it was for safety, uh, safety, safety related training. So they got their, their credential to do training for architects and in doing those lunch and learns or training sessions, so that they get their the architects get their CEUs, right? Their PDHs, they got a lot of business out of them. So she thought lunch and learns was a powerful tool, not just for showcasing your expertise, but for growing your network and building the confidence that you need to communicate to other people. And one of the one of the and this that's training, but one of the things about lunch and learns, if you're going to do a good job of it, you have to start to understand what your client cares about. You can't just show up with your technical presentation and put it out there and hope that they were interested in it. You know, one of the keys to doing a successful program is making sure that you've communicated with them in advance to understand what it is they want to hear. And then when you're there at the beginning, here's what we're going to talk about today. Does that make sense? We leave anything out, any of those things not important to you so you can adjust on the fly. A lot of this is understanding your audience which is what business development's all about. Right. And, and that gets into a couple other aspects of communication skills I'd love to get your thoughts on, but because <clears throat> you talked about um, writing and presentations, what? but you asked, you started this by asking great questions and then letting the answer happen, like listening to the answer. How do you think about those different aspects of communication and how important they are, like learning how to ask powerful questions? And then letting the answer come out um, as part of communication. How, how do you, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so here's what, here's what, firm, and I, I can't, don't have visibility into all the firms that do have internal business development training. I don't exactly know what they do. I don't know what sort of outside 
resources they use. But but here's some things that I think that they there's no way that they could all teach these, even if they have an internal training program. This is why I think it makes sense to talk to somebody that has something externally and see what what they have, because everybody's good at gathering technical requirements. Not everybody's good at gathering the human requirements. Let's say sitting across from the client project manager who has to deliver the the project. Some of the smart questions that people forget to answer or don't think to answer, and are things like, you know, how do you find define success for this project? When I was 23, I got training on how to go gather requirements from clients, and these were software requirements. We started with questions like that about understanding the executive or manager that we were talking to. You know, how do you find success? Have you done a similar project before? What went well? What could have gone better? What do you look for in a project manager? Tell me what's, you know, tell me what drives you crazy with a project manager. You know, what's, who's the best one you've ever worked with? What did they do? So if you start to understand how they like to work with people and what is most important to them, then that's a different kind of conversation than coming in and talking about drainage right off the bat, because you came in and wanted to show how smart you were that you did some, you looked at the aerials and you knew they were, drainage was going to be a big issue for the project, right? Because that's the other thing is people want to prove how smart they are as opposed to truly trying to understand the client. And it's not so much that you're gathering information that'll show up in a proposal and you will, you may not know how to use it in the proposal, but you're building relation, deeper relationship with that person because you're, you ask them a question and you ask them a follow-up question. The follow-up question might be, well, well, tell me more, what happened next? Or, or, you know, what did you mean by that? Why do you say that? Give me an example. If you can get, say, use the word, give me an example, you get the client to tell you a story. As soon as they tell you a story, then you can keep them talking. But when they tell you a story, there's going to be emotion that comes out. They're going to say, I was so mad that they told me the night before that they were going to miss a deadline. And I know they had known for two weeks. That's what drives me crazy. And then you get to say, oh, you want pro, you want somebody, a project manager is going to communicate with you proactively. That's not, you, you hate late surprises. Yeah, I hate late surprises. Now you've just demonstrated that you understood that person and what they cared about. That's the kind of company, you don't have to have a lot of sales. You know, you don't have to go to a, be a full-time sophisticated salesperson who's had two weeks of training every year. And I think that's the other fear that people have is that they feel, they feel like I really have to be good at it. So I make it simple by giving them those key questions to, uh, to ask. And I give them tools too. You'll be able to see this on a podcast. I'm going to show it to you, Pete, because we're on camera together. I created this notepad. It's a note-taking device and it has these questions on it. The questions that most people don't think to ask. And then these reminder questions up here at the top. Give me an example. Tell me more. Why do you say that? Because these are sometimes salespeople. I could train, I could spend two days doing a boot camp with them, train them how to do this stuff. They're going to go back and they're not going to go on a business development call for two weeks and they're not going to remember any of the stuff we talked about. So I give them something that they can use to organize their conversation with the client and then to take notes on it. And the client can't tell that they've got a cheat sheet in front of them. They don't know what it is. So, or they could use this to organize their, their, their interview agenda with the client another way, you know? And, and at that point you're having conversation. And if you're truly interested in the answers, right? I mean, you're building relationships. You're not selling anything. That's exactly right. So I, I've thought of it in terms of, you know, technical sales that, you know, it, introverts can actually sell better in terms of int to introverts because there's this really caring about the technical. But I think even on outside of that perspective, if we're a technical professional asking some of these questions and we really care about the answers because we want to solve the problem, we're really building relationships we're not selling anything. We're just trying to understand the context of the problem so that we can deliver a solution. And, and that aspect sort of takes the, the sting out of this piece. And do, have you found that just even talking about building the relationship and understanding you know, what the problem is to solve um, and the context to which to solve it, it, does that, when you see that in practice, does that sort of lower the anxiety? Absolutely. I mean, you, you just nailed it. You um, I could have interviewed you and you could have said that and it would have been a great podcast, Pete. So good answer to a, pot, to a question. You, you lower, the, anytime you can lower the anxiety level, 
you give people a better chance to succeed. And I, th- I think you, the, the way I put this in all the, the training that I do with people is it ain't about you. Because if you think it's about you, then you're going in to sell. And then you're worried about how well you communicate. You know, are you, are you selling your ideas? Are you selling the firm? Are you hitting the right buttons? And are you, are you making a mess out of it because you got nervous? So those are the things that get in the way. If you go into it instead as trying to understand the client and not just the technical part of it, but understand the person. And we all know how to do this. We do it all the time. Naturally, it's just we go to meet with the client. All of a sudden, we think we're supposed to do something else. Right. Besides try to understand what's going on with somebody else. And then we want to interrupt and show how smart we are. And that's when we make it about us. So that's the it's not about you part. Go in, do, you know, a third of the talking the first time you meet with them. The second time you go back, maybe you do two thirds of the talking because they want to hear what your approach is to solving their problem. So there should be a little maybe a little bit more pressure on you there because you are putting something out there and they may not like everything that they heard. But that's, you know, you got to see that as feedback and not failure. If they, it's a gift. If they tell you, no, that doesn't feel right to me. Because then you get a chance to say, okay, so where, where did we get it wrong? Or is there something we could do? If we did this, if we teamed with somebody, would that change your mind? Right. I I do. I want to be respectful of your time. I would love to, and I want to be able to get into, you know, the failure pieces and giving people freedom to fail because they learn this, right? We don't know, even if we've got great training, we've got to put it into use. But before we get there, just as we're talking about having these higher level questions and being able to build relationships, what is, is that how we become sort of move from the practitioner to a consultant? Like what's that consultant ladder look like? I mean, the progression to sort of be I'm a practitioner and then I'm going to learn how to like, you know, talk to people and, and talk to them more about what we do, you know, in that, you know, so building my network and educating people. But then we get to this, I'm more of a consultant. I have this consultant mindset. Could you share a little bit about that ladder and that that journey to end up with a consultant? And then we'll sort of dive into the some of the failure piece. Sure. I think of there being being kind of stair step here where you and I call it the consultant maturity. Uh, consultant maturity model, and, and just to put a fancy name on on it, but I think it communicates. And one is when you're just starting out, you're 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 a technical expert, so kind of at the bottom, you're a technical expert. You deliver, well, you deliver deliverables. You're you have output that somebody's paying for, right? And you have your little piece of the project. Maybe sometimes that gets broader, and you've got people working for you, but you're still responsible for technical part of the project. The next level is your you're responsible for delivering solutions. And I think of those as project managers, you know, and it goes higher than that within the, the project org chart, right? For delivering delivering a solution. So that's getting something designed and built in the built environment, right? And so most of that's focused on delivery. The next level, as you were pointing out, is not just about execution. It's truly becoming a consultant to the client and understanding the industry that starts with understanding the industry first and foremost and technical people just starting out may not have a an industry focus right so you might have somebody that does i keep using drainage design you might have somebody that does drainage design they do that for site civil and they do it you know because they're doing parking lots and they do it for dot work too maybe they end up as they grow in their maturity, they end up specializing in a particular industry and they either do site civil or they do transportation work. Then at that point, when you've been out there for a while, it's important for you to understand the the industry issues. It could be it could be the economy, it could be changes in technology, it could be competitive threats. You know, people talk about the five Forces model is one of those tools to analyze what's going on. I won't explain what that is. People can Google it. They don't know what the five forces model is, but it's that, uh, am I able to see how this project fits into the overall scheme of things with the client? How's the client organization going to be successful? And then I think at the next level up from that, some people will call it trusted advisor. And there's a great book by David Meister called, it may just be called The Trusted Advisor. I I recommend any of his books for people that are readers, M-A-I-S-T-E-R. Most people my age would would know most of his books already. But he 
he he talks about trusted advisor. He talks about it at the organizational level. I tend to think that the trusted advisor happens at a personal level. So now you're you're you have a kind of relationship with somebody, usually an executive. You don't have necessarily have to have gray hair to be a trusted advisor, but you have to have some gravitas. You, you're not doing this when you're in usually in your twenties. It doesn't usually happen. So you have been around for a while, but that's the kind of person where they could pick up the phone and say, "Hey, I'm having trouble with with one of my kids, and I know that you've gone through the same thing. Do you have a few minutes for me to give you for to to give me some advice?" It's that next level of relationship that goes outside the boundaries of the organization. But also, you know, if these are senior folks, you're helping them solve not just their organizational problems, but helping make them successful personally on the job. And that's when you might end up being a kind of a coach or mentor to somebody else. I have a client that's a that's a mentor to me. If I have an issue or if I'm trying to close a piece of business with somebody and I'm confused about something, I can call him and get advice from him on how to talk to my prospect. That's well, the kind of relationship you. we have. Mm, th- thank you for that. I did want to, you know, as we, we start to close here, I, I know, you know, when we first met, you talked about, you know, um, allowing, letting go of some things and giving people the freedom to fail and, and recognizing that, you know, with the desire, you know, that's, the, and then I have some information, maybe I get it through training. I, I Google it. I sit through different courses. I have information, but in order to take that information, turn it into skills, take those skills and turn it into mastery, I got to do something. And I'm inevitably going to have some failures along the way. You talk about this, you're giving people freedom to fail, we might be talking about client relationships, business development. How do you approach that? In order to really excel at this, we've got to be able to fail. Failure's not good in some respects, right? Unless we, we really treat it as it's the learning ground. Anyway, how do you think about that? How, as it relates to business development, really getting people to the place that they can truly be successful, which is going to be not successful out of the gate. Right. Maybe a couple of different ways to tackle that question. I'll, I'll, I, I thought I was going to answer it one way. I'm going to give you. A, I'm going to start with a different answer. Is that I think one of the one of the failures or one of the one of the things that gets in the way of people doing more business development. And let's say these are people in their 30s, early 40s, and I, I just throw age out there because it should reflect how much experience you have on the job. If you if you came out of college and started in the industry, it would would roughly relate to when you knew enough about what was going on to actually be able to sell something, right? The 20, the 10, 20 years experience. Yeah, 10, 20 years. So what gets in the way of a lot of people is I'm always putting out fires. Well, I was too busy. I was putting out fires. Well, why are you putting out fires all the time? That's a management issue. That's a leadership issue. It's because you haven't developed your people. You're, you know, if you've been around 15 years, don't you have somebody that's five years behind you that you could trust to solve those problems? Do you have to go to every single project meeting at the client or can you pick up the phone, call the client and say, hey, you know, uh, Pete's got this. Uh, I, I can join by Zoom rather than drive over there. But I think Pete, I think Pete's got this. If you need me, pick up the phone call. If you think I need to be there, just say so and I'll, I'll, I'll be there. You know, forget I asked you that question. Of course, I'll be there if you want me there. Right. And they might have saved you a three hour drive to get to the client, a three hour drive back and maybe you were just able to join by Zoom. Zoom's kind of like blown up this example a little bit, right? Because a lot of people can join by Zoom. But you can come up with your own similar example of something that just took a bunch of your time and it just freed you up to do some business development work. What would you do if you had that? Let's just say you had two hours a week back on your schedule during business hours when you could actually call somebody. How would you use it? And so I think that one of the things that gets in the way for the more senior managers is lack of being a good leader and not giving people a chance to take more responsibility than you might have been willing to give them for you to have the courage for them to make mistakes because that's how they're going to learn. Of course, you're going to coach and mentor them to try to keep them from failing spectacularly and you're not going to have one of them, you're not going to have your 28 year old be the lead presenter on a on the, the shortlist interview presentation for a 65 million dollar five year GEC contract, right? We're not talking about that. 
Can you let them take responsibility for writing a $50,000 proposal and say, here, you know, you've worked on a couple of these with me before. We've got a library of good, good proposals if you want to study some of those. But here, I want you to write this one and you come to me with whatever questions you have. So then you can be the, the guru on the mountain and make that person struggle with it and come asking for help if they need it. So it's that that that's part of the the fear that gets in the way. But I think, you know, people. People, and it may not just be fear of letting somebody fail. It may be fear of going out and doing the business development themselves, right? That that's leading them to put out fires all the time. Hey, I'm getting putting out fires. So it goes back. It's not just for the you know the the more junior doer seller seller doers. It's for those. It's keeping people from becoming rainmakers, right? It happens up the chain as well. The other thing that came up with one of the executives I interviewed was. It's it, it kind of ties to that. It's hard to let go of the work that you're good at when you're faced with using that spare time to do work that you are uncomfortable with or might not be good at. And so again, that works up and down the chain. And he said, you know, you gotta you have to step back and think, you know, is there somebody else who could solve the technical problem? Can can I ascend and solve organizational problems? And to your point, Pete, become the the consultant as opposed to just the delivery person. And that's where, where you get that freedom when you're willing to let go of the technical that you're good at and it frees you up to become a consultant. I, I love the way you just said that. So like the, the, you know, needing to have the courage to give the opportunity to others, right? But better delegation, teaching, coaching, and mentoring can minimize that. But then it's also the courage to, in some cases, to maybe remove your fear uh, or remove your excuse um, to then spend more time in an area that you might be fearful of. And, and in some degree, right? It, I mean, it, it's how do you see your role and function? Is it a responsibility of your role as a senior manager or a leader to build the capacity of your team, to build the capacity of the firm, to, to go out and do some more business development? And, you know, I, and so sometimes it's the, how you understand your role and function. Um, but I, I, I appreciate. Thank you for sharing that because I think you know fear does drive a lot of us, but it can also be used as a great motivator. Yeah. I think you know fear that I don't develop my team, fear yeah. that I don't go out and take control of my career, because then you take the fear and now it's the motivator, right? right. To then go do things. So right. um, I, I think that's pretty powerful. I you as share one 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 more example that has to do with the procrastination or the I call it inertia, but absolutely because it's procrastination because it never happened. If it never happens, is procrastination? It's inertia if it never happens, right? So. And this excuse comes up all the time. I'm, you know, I'm too busy. It's already, we've already talked about it a couple of times today. I'm, I'm too busy. I'm putting out client fires. Well, do you ever meet with your clients? Well, sure. Of course. This is project work. We have project meetings all the time. Okay. How long do those last? Usually an hour. I said, whoever, whoever said that meetings have to be an hour. Right? Can't you leverage time that you already have with your client that, that's on the books? Can you make it at 11 o'clock so that when you're done, you go to lunch afterwards? Right? Or even better, can you show up and say, hey, I know this project status meeting. Uh, we're normally an hour. I think we can get this done in, in 40 minutes. If, if I promise to do that, can you hang around for 15 minutes? We can find out what else is going on. Didn't cost you anything, any extra time to do that. So it's an, it's people not thinking of how to use their time wisely. One of the things I'm surprised at in this industry is people haven't had effective meetings training. I mean, you can read 10 pages on how to run effective meetings. You don't need to go to boot camp to learn how to run an effective meeting. But part of it's agreeing on expectations up front and agreeing on the agenda. Same thing you would do on a sales call. But if you did a better job at that and didn't go in with the mindset that meetings are supposed to be an hour or two hours, it's liberating and it frees you up to do some of these other things. And you can't say you don't have time. Mm, that, that's, that's great. Cause it, and it's the, 
in our busyness or in our, it could be legit busy. It could be, we're just not making the time to think critically and strategically about the third way, right? The, how can this be different? What do we, if we do something different, how do we need to, what, what else can we accomplish? And, and sometimes that is really baking in some margin in our, in our schedule, especially as leaders to really think critically and strategically about what, what are our, what are our biggest fresh frustrations? What are our biggest friction points? What are our biggest opportunities? And actually think through and and put our problem solving skills to work because right. we're super problem solvers right. we just a lot of times don't look to solve our own problems um right. and right. create our own opportunities so i i appreciate you saying that i appreciate everything you shared today i mean we could continue for a long time i think um but i think this is it's just super helpful on a lot of levels but as we close here is there anything else that we haven't talked about um that would help leaders sort of create and sustain this sort of entrepreneurial mindset within themselves, within their, their organizations, as it relates to sort of being able to secure work that, that we haven't spoken about that, that you think would be helpful? One of the things that I would suggest is that people stop trying to figure out who they think is going to succeed because invariably you're going to be wrong. I don't know if you read, there's a book by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. And he was a psychologist and working in the Israeli army, and they were trying to figure out who the best leaders were going to be. So they devised experiments that would like throw in a log over a wall without, you know, the log touching the wall, like a telephone pole size log over a, over a high wall without touching the wall. And um, they would, they would observe them and try to figure out who the leaders were going to be. And they were invariably wrong. So they kept refining their experiment because they were convinced that their experiment was right and, and that they should be able to figure it out. So if you, if you think that just by observing people, you're going to figure out who the stars are going to be, you might be right some of the time, but there are going to be some hidden gems out there that need the extra uh, encouragement. And one thing that I would suggest to do is to try to build these communication, these core consulting foundational skills in all of your people because some of them are going to build the confidence in communication that is going to allow them to blossom later. And it's going to be less frightening for them to start to do business development and sales. So quit trying to figure out who of your 25 year olds you think are going to make it and, and send, you know, I've got a seller doer program. I'd love for people to be in, but if you think that you're going to figure out who they are real early in their career, I'm going to tell you, I'd rather see you spend time developing their communication skills, pay their $150 Toastmasters international fee to join Toastmasters. I couldn't end this conversation without talking about Toastmasters. Pay, you know, it's 200 bucks a, a year or something like that, right? Uh -huh. uh, and so they get out of it what they invest their time in, whether it's going every week or every other week, write that check for them and help them develop those communication skills because that's nothing next to nothing, but you never know what, how that's going to pay off in two, three or four years. Maybe you do have them in a shortlist interview presentation. What are you going to do? Bring somebody like me in that coaches shortlist interview presentation teams. You're going to help them be a rock star presenter 24 hours before the, the presentation. No, learning how to speak in public is a process. It's a skill that takes a long time. It's not something that can be done in a boot camp. So and that'll help them be better writers. It helps them be better leaders. So that's the kind of thing that I would suggest that you do for anybody who says they want to step up and do it. And hey, you know what? It helps with recruiting and retention right now because people expect professional development opportunities. And that's an easy one to write a check for. But also doing internal training is going to be important. But I think it's more important for people to have those core communication and consulting skills than to have uh, tr try to make a, take a bunch of real good seller doers and make them rain bankers. I think you're better off spending on development farther down the the hierarchy in the organization. Anyway, long answer to your what's your final thought there, Jim? Question. Well, I, I appreciate that. How how can listeners get in touch with you to learn more about you, um, the book, and your training? So the, the easiest way to get to the book, the Amazon site, you, you can get there very easily. The book's called Becoming a Seller Doer. So you type in becomingasellerdoer.com, it'll take you straight to the Amazon page. The, my company website is sellerdoeracademy.com. And if somebody wanted to send me an email, jim at sellerdoeracademy.com. 
Excellent. We'll put links to all those in the show notes as well. Well, Jim, thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation as always, and uh, all the uh, all the insight you were able to to share with the listeners today. Um, so, thank you. Glad to do it. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. For joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.